Hello and welcome to The Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. I'm Alan McCubbin. And I'm Steph Gaskell. We're both accredited sports dietitians based in Melbourne and combined have over 30 years experience working with runners, cyclists and triathletes to help them stay healthy and optimise their performance from complete beginners through to professional and Olympic athletes. Today is a very special episode, episode 50A, and we are chatting with American trail and ultra coaching legend Jason Coop. So we're going to discuss with Jason the evolution of coaching and nutrition in trail and ultra running and what's transferred across from cycling and triathlon into the sports of trail and ultra running. We'll talk about Jason's journey in coaching initially cyclists and triathletes and then the move into ultra running and sort of pioneering the coaching in that space and also his book on training for ultra runners. We'll talk about what the top ultra runners are doing these days in terms of their approach to race day fueling and hydration and what we can learn from that and maybe what we need to bear in mind for recreational athletes. And there's plenty of practical tips and suggestions along the way as well. So, Dr. Steph Gaskell, congratulations. <laughs> You're uh, officially PhD confirmed now. So, um, congratulations. How are you going? I'm good, Al. I'm good. Yeah, that was very good news to hear. Finally, minor amendments that I had to do and done those now. So I still haven't written, you know, doctor next to my name yet, though. <laughs> yep. Have you got that official letter that that, uh, that you get from the university that says, congratulations, Dr. Gaskell? A email I've gotten so far. So I haven't gotten a uh-huh. letter yet. So still still yep. waiting for that. Yep. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Very nice. Very nice. And obviously, we've been away for a couple of weeks now with the podcast. We did plan to have a week off because we had a guest who uh, unfortunately couldn't make it at the last minute. Mm. Uh, And then also because our guest today, Jason, was just coming back into the country from overseas. So we couldn't get this podcast out last week. Mm. But uh, I think it's fair to say, Steph, that had we attempted to do a podcast in the last two weeks, we would have failed miserably because uh, both of us have been crazy busy. What have you been up to the last two weeks? Yeah, it's been hectic. A bit of family stuff going on, which is all good and exciting. Um, and then, yeah, job interviews, which our I haven't done an actual job interview and like since graduation from university. Yeah, that's that's how long ago. So I was a wee bit nervous, but anyway, that hopefully uh, went well. And then workshops with you, Al, um, for the Sports Dietitians Australia course for those that are going to become sports dietitians. So you obviously had a massive workload there and made my job super easy, but that was a lot of fun. Yeah, you were making up slushies and getting people to run through aid stations and all sorts of stuff. Yeah, I got the good, the the fun stuff. But what about you? You've been having a lot a big workload yeah yeah exactly right so that's sports nutrition course as you said so I'm contracted to coordinate that course so um, as well as presenting across the two days I had to sort of coordinate everyone else who was presenting and all the activities and that kind of thing and it's a new format this course this year so uh, there's a lot of work obviously that went into that uh, and we also had the day after that sports nutrition course I know both you were presenting as well in the room next to me, but uh, myself and Greg Cox, who we've had on this podcast before, uh, were presenting a, a masterclass on nutrition for endurance athletes. Uh, and yourself, along with Ricardo Costa uh, and Chris Rauch from, from Monash Uni, were presenting a workshop next door for some other sports dietitians around assessing athletes for, for gut issues and interpreting all that data and, and what to do with it. 
Yeah, I had yeah. a pretty easy job though compared to yours. I think you would have been talking a lot more than me and I was just um, answering a few questions. So that was actually quite a, an easy workshop for me. <laughs> now there you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Updates and announcements, Al. What's happening? Yeah, well, what's happening? Well, it is our episode 50. It's not our 50th episode, obviously, because we have A's and B's and occasionally C's. So I think it's actually, oh, I can't remember off the top of my head, maybe mm. episode 95 or something like that, our 95th episode. So we will have a something special, I think, for our 100th episode, mm. which I think will probably coincide early in the new year, I suspect. Uh, but we also have next week our second birthday episode as well. Yeah. So I think it's this week or last week is uh, the second anniversary of the podcast also. So we'll have, uh, like we did last year, a, um, a wrap-up of the year of the podcast where we do uh, a lightning round summary, basically, of all the topics we've covered over the last year and mm -hmm. wrapped up into one podcast. So if you can't be bothered going back and listening to us gasbagging for a long period of time about all of those topics and answering all those questions, you can get them all in one place. And yep. that one will be out next week. But we also have some changes coming up for the podcast. We mentioned this a few weeks ago, um, and we'll announce those next week in that second birthday episode. Awesome. And um, just a reminder that you can find us on social media at The Long Munch, um, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Twitter, Got there yeah, in the end. still around. Yep, still around. Yeah, people were... We're talking about it uh, getting collapsing onto itself in the last week, but it's still there. It's still going, still ticking. Today's episode, talking to Jason Coop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Jason uh, might be a very familiar name to many of the trail and ultra runners out there. He's a, a coach based in Boulder, Colorado, and he's uh, somewhat of a legend in the, the ultra and, and trail running scene in the U.S., uh, being a sort of a pioneering coach in the trail space. He works with CTS Coaching based in Boulder and they coach cyclists and triathletes as well as runners. Uh, and he has done a lot of coaching in cycling and triathlon early on, but I think he's primarily doing running coaching these days. But he has trained or, or does train some of the biggest names in the sport, people like Dean Karnazes, Timothy Olsen, Dylan Bowman, and also Katie Scheid, who won the female UTMB this year. Mm. So um, that was a, a great, great win. Uh, and we're going to chat to Jason about that. Uh, he also literally wrote the book or the Bible, as a lot of people refer to it, for training for ultra runners. It's called Training Essentials for Ultra Running. It's now in its second edition. So we'll talk a little bit about that book and, and how that came to be. And some people might know Jason because he has his own podcast as well, Coopcast. And that covers aspects of training and nutrition for ultra runners as well. So we had a, a pretty wide ranging chat on a whole range of topics. As I said, it's not specific to one particular question around nutrition. This was more of a, a general chat about particularly, I guess, the evolution of nutrition in trail and ultra running and ultra endurance sport in general, and how he sees that playing out as a coach who's often, you know, on the trail with the athletes, you know, handing them food and drinks and those kind of things and observing not only what his athletes are doing, but what other athletes are doing and, and how those things are changing over time. Now, Steph, you weren't able to make it for this one. You had a, a last minute change of plans. So uh, it's just me talking to Jason, but uh, I'm sure you enjoy listening to it. 
Yeah, can't wait to listen to it. So, yeah, let's get into it. Yep, let's do it. Jason Coop, welcome to the Long Munch. How are things going over there for you? You're in a van, I can see. Yeah, I'm back in my van. I spent a lot of time in this. Um, it's been one of the best professional purchases that I've ever uh, that I've ever made in my career. So, yeah, it's all it's all good. Back on the road again. Uh, as I was mentioning off air, I'm headed uh, back back home to Texas, and then I'm going to spend some time at the running event, which is a big uh, industry trade show that's in Austin in December uh, every year. Yeah. Awesome. And you've got quite the setup there. You've got all sorts of bags and things. It sounds like this is something you take away to you or with you to, to race events. Yeah, I use it um, to support athletes at events, you know, mm-hmm. so I'll go out to a race and I'll support them from here. But then also when I race myself, I just take it and, you know, this van life thing has become so kind of ubiquitous, particularly here in the States, um, that, uh, it used to be kind of like novel, but now it seems like every, everybody's got one. So, yeah. but I, I like, I like my setup. It's got everything I need and nothing I don't, and I can work entirely remotely. You know, I have a very good internet setup here and Starlink is, you know, just improving upon that. So it's, uh, I'm, I'm really fortunate to be able to do it. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Now, obviously, a lot of our trail running listeners will be familiar with you because of either your book, so Training Essentials for Ultra Running, which is, I think, second edition came out earlier this year, didn't it? Yeah, actually, about a year ago. uh, I remember scrambling around uh, last year around this time exactly around this time to get it released in uh in anticipation of black friday i wanted to get it ready for the Uh, christmas season and so it was just probably on this trip the mirror image of this trip one year one year ago i was probably just putting the final touches on it and uploading it to amazon and waiting for the hard copies to come in and stuff like that so yeah it's but it's been out for about a year now yeah awesome uh and other other people might be more familiar with your podcast coopcast which I think I was just having a look back before you coming up or just have had your third anniversary of the podcast as well. Wow. Yeah. I, I was not keeping track of that, but yeah, it's been, <laughs> it's, it's been a while. I've, I've really enjoyed doing it. Um, and, um, it's been a, it's honestly been a pretty incredible professional development experience because it's given me the opportunity to talk to people that, I wouldn't normally have access to, or they wouldn't even give me the time of day. So people like yourself and other people in the sports science community that uh, produce really great work that I was familiar with simply from the research side of things, you know, the podcast has really been able to give me, you know, access to those people and satiate my own curiosity as well Mm. as provide a platform so that other athletes and other coaches can satiate their curiosity around any number of different endurance and sports, sports science types of topics. Yeah, yeah, and I'd say exactly the same for for Steph and I with this one as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. but I'm curious. Obviously, both of the both the podcast and the book obviously focused around trail and ultra running. You obviously are running yourself, but let's go back. Where did sort of the the trail running journey start for you? Well, I, I've been a runner all my life. You know, I ran in high school and I ran in college. I was a very average, you know, mediocre runner throughout both of those experiences. And, um, I also coached for our summer track team, just a, you know, teenager, you know, youth type of track program. And that's really where I fell in love with, uh, coaching as a, as, as a profession. I was able to 
you know, very fortunately kind of translate that into a professional career after, uh, after university. Um, but I moved to Colorado to pursue that professional opportunity and, you know, there you just can't help, but to run out on the trails there. And so it really started with that, with the very classic, you know, North American Pikes Peak Ascent and Pikes Peak Marathon, which, you know, a lot of people in uh, North America are going to be familiar with. I started doing those two trail races, uh, very consistently year after year after year in a very, you know, stereotypical, you know, type of fashion, the trail marathon led to trail 50 K led to a trail 50 mile or led to a trail 100, 200, 250 miles over the course of, you know, the last 20 years or so. So yeah. it, it really all started though with a love of running that, you know, I had since I was a, since I was a teenager and I just had happened to have very influential mentors in my life that just fostered it, you know, as a love of sport, as opposed to, you know, some sort of high level competition or things like that. Yeah. Cool. And I know you've done coaching in other sports as well, cycling, triathlon, that side of things. Are they sports that you've been involved with participating in or is it more just the the coaching through running has sort of crossed over into those other sports along the way? Uh, yeah, I, I definitely, for a while, I was coaching exclusively cyclists and triathletes. Mm. And part of the, you know, maybe a little bit of that was by choice. But a lot of it was just driven by market demands. You know, I, I worked in the remote-based endurance coaching industry, which is now ubiquitous everywhere. I, you know, I've been working in it since the since the internet was, you know, very ill-formed, and we had extremely poor tools to transfer data files from the athletes to their coaches. And at the time, only triathletes and cyclists would really take us up on the offer of remote-based endurance coaching. It really did not take off in running or trail and ultra running for years. And, and in fact, anybody who's listened to, you know, uh, my podcast or have, have read any of the material that, I, that I've written is kind of familiar with the story. Kind of in the early 2000s, when I very first started to, started to try to work with trail and ultra runners, I went around to all of the elite athletes at the time and tried to convince them to take on coaching, right? I was going to coach them for free. You know, it's a sport that, you know, seemingly to me would be very ripe for coaching. It's complicated, you know, structured training would, would benefit those athletes greatly. And then also a professional hand to like guide the other X's and O's of the process. It made all the sense in the world to me as, as a coach. And I was, was routinely refused across the entirety of all of that trail running spectrum. I mean, I, I got laughed out, out of not just one, but several meetings with these high level athletes. And, you know, it took a good eight years or so for that community to really come around to this concept of, uh, of endurance coaching. So yeah, for a long period of time, I was coaching exclusively cyclists and, and, and triathletes, not not, you know, not by choice, but just because the market really wasn't there. Mm. And then all of a sudden the market kind of turned around and a lot of runners and a lot, particularly a lot of trail and ultra runners started to see remote based endurance coaching as a viable option. And that's really when my focus started to, to turn as well. Mm. Yeah. And I know I think Dean Karnazes must've been one of those earlier ones at in terms of at that elite level, I think in the sort of mid two thousands there. Yeah. Yeah. I've known Dean for a long time. He, he took a you know, kind of not a risk, but kind of a first leap of faith, so to speak, mm. and 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 allowing me to help him out for a couple of projects that he was doing at the time. Um, 
And uh, I'm very, I'm very fortunate for that because I, I do think that that was one of cer- certainly was not the only one, but that certainly was one of the pieces that eventually started to turn this tide of, it was really a 180 degree turn mm. of athletes just routinely refusing any sort of professional outside counsel to now it's, it's, it's in the norm where the top mm. athletes in the world are getting coaching in some form or fashion. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I was going to ask you, was there anything else that you thought was kind of that tipping point that, that did change that? Um, you know, I, there, Dean was certainly a little bit of it. I mean, I can speak from personal perspective and I, I do, I, I, I do recognize that there was a, at least to me and in the way that I was operating my business at the time, a very clear, clear inflection point when Dakota Jones won Transvolcania. And, um, you know, this was, geez, and I've known Dakota for so, for so long now. And I give him very, very, very rare, if any coaching advice as of late, but, but when he was 21 years old, I was, you know, routinely, routinely coaching him and he set the course record at uh, Lake Sonoma and then in very spectacular fashion beat Killian Jornet at Transvolcania. And that's when people started to take notice. Um, it really took a win like that against an athlete like that to, to kind of make not only myself, but like coaching kind of on the radar, so to speak. And I'm not sitting here claiming that, you know, I'm the sole or even the predominant reason that, you know, Dakota had that great win. I'm going to be the last person to take credit for any of my athletes, uh, successes, but in terms of people starting to pay attention you know, make, make, make no mistake about it. That absolutely made a huge, huge impression on the landscape as a whole and, and definitely perpetuated this, this snowball that already was starting to form. It gave it a little bit more mass and a little bit more, more speed to where not only myself, but a lot of other coaches within the ecosystem could kind of pick up on. Mm, Yeah. And it seems to me a bit of a a cultural thing as well. Like we think about um, triathlon was probably one of the first of the endurance sports that really had that scientific mindset about it. And then obviously, you know, it's pretty well documented the story with, you know, Greg Lamont coming along with the aero bars in the late eighties. And, and all of a sudden that, that that sort of scientific mentality started to shift into professional cycling. And it kind of feels like that's almost like a natural extension of that. That's then moved into, to running and, and particularly ultra running over, over time. It's sort of like, well, someone makes that first move and people go, Oh, this science stuff actually works and gets a result. (laughs) And so we're going to pick up on that. Is that kind of the, the feeling that you get as well? A little bit. I mean, in all fairness, uh, I, I illustrate this uh, in, in the book kind of quite early on, or, or at least in the second edition of the book quite early on. The, the first year that I started working with ultramarathon athletes, there were exactly six research papers with the keyword ultramarathon, ultra distance, you know, some, some combination of that. I can't remember what the, what the specifics behind it were, but there were exactly six papers that you could find on PubMed, uh, that, that were related to that topic. And so it wasn't, it it was this combination of the culture that you mentioned, but also you do have to recognize the fact that it's a, it's a difficult sport to, to really put a lot of sports science behind just in terms of how do you actually study it? Mm. And so what I was doing from a very, from a very early on standpoint is we were drawing on all of these lessons that we had learned predominantly in Ironman triathlon, but also in, in, in cycling in particular, uh, like grand, uh, grand tour type of cycling where the, 
you know, the, uh, where the metabolic demands and the energy demands, uh, are, are, are relatively similar, or at least close. We were drawing on a lot of the lessons that we had learned from there to try to inform the practice for ultra, because we really didn't have anything else aside from other people's experience. And I, I can remember, you know, a lot of what ultra marathon runners were doing at that time is they were looking at this thing called the ultra listserv, which was just a massive, you know, email chain, essentially, or email based Ooh. forum. And people would ask, Hey, I'm training for the JFK 50. You know, what did you do? And then everybody would chime in on what they did. Hey, I'm training Ooh. for the Western States 100. What did you do? And then everybody would chime in on what they did. And training at that time was literally just this continually, you know, passing down in this endless game of telephone from many people. And one person would have to distill all of that information down to, to determine what, you know, made sense for them. So it, it really, there really wasn't a very good system for it, I guess is what I'm saying. We really didn't know a lot. We were relying on a lot of anecdote. In addition to that, the research just hasn't, haven't, hasn't really quite caught, hadn't really quite caught on to the, to, to, to studying the sport as a whole. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. And, and certainly reading the first chapter of your book, it sounds like that was very much the genesis of the book was that there wasn't anything out there and it was trying to draw on all of these bits of science as it's emerging and distill it into one place. Yeah, very much so. Um, you know, I can remember uh, my co-author, Jim Ruckberg, who I've known for a very long time. He uh, cajoled me into writing the first edition of the book after like three years of, you know, berating me pretty much every every workday, five days a week and, <laughs> into writing this book. And I think the kind of the final tipping point, uh, uh, well, I won't mention the final tipping point, but, but a lot of the, a lot of the cajoling had to do with the fact that we had this sport that was gaining a lot of traction at the time in terms of participation and the predominant way that people were getting their training information was just, you know, anecdote from other people. And I wanted to make a book that I wish I had when I first started coaching athletes, and so that was the initial orientation around the first book is like, listen, if I could go back 10, 10 or 15 years, 15 years at that time, if I could go back 15 years and have something, some initial starting point to start to work with athletes, what would I want? And, and the, the tone and the craft of the book really revolved around that singular goal. Mm. Yeah. Awesome. Okay, well, let's talk, uh, skip ahead, I guess, to, to the present and, and what you've been up to recently. Um, and it seems you had a, a fairly big year for lots of different reasons, but we'll start off with your own running. And I saw online that you ran Hard Rock 100 back in July. How did that go? <laughs> Well, yeah, I heart, you know, hard rocks, a difficult race. It started with Cocodona though. I did the Cocodona 250, uh, in May. Yeah. I, I put a lot of effort into that. That was a, you know, I mean, I wouldn't say it's an unknown distance cause I've done Tour de Jante before, uh, in Italy, which from a duration perspective is much, much longer in time, mm. but the distance is obviously shorter. So I started out, I started out with that in May and it was really cool experience and the, the training process took a lot out of me. So to answer your question about hard rock, it was right down the middle. It wasn't my best. It wasn't my worst. It was right in the middle. I did everything I could, you know, during, during the race, but I certainly was not, uh, coming into the race with a, uh, 
full armor and ammunition to tackle yep. to tackle the course. It was definitely a little bit still uh, reeling from a earlier from an effort earlier in the season, but but nonetheless, yep. I enjoyed it. It was a great experience. Yeah, awesome. And then not long after that, you headed over to Europe, uh, over to France, and supported several of the athletes that you coach at UTMB. And I saw online you sort of described that as, you know, one of the most memorable 48 hours of coaching you'd ever experienced. Tell us what it was about that that made it such a special, special few days. Well, you know, I've been going out to UTMB for the last several years now. It's always a big, um, it's always a big spectacle. And to kind of like set the story up with the conclusion of it is, you know, I had several athletes in, 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 in the race, everybody who I had in UTMB finished UTMB. I had a winner in Katie Scheid, uh, who won, who won the women's, uh, division of UTMB. I had another elite athlete, uh, Abby Hall, who, uh, set a one hour PR on her CCC time. And she's been going back to CCC several times. So it's not like it was a, you know, one mm. hour from nothing <laughs> type of yep. deal. And it, it ended up getting third and I think she was either under the course record or really close to the course record. So anyway, that was an absolutely uh, spectacular performance, but she backed that up a little bit and, um, uh, I, I get to the race and I'm having all of my like pre-athlete meetings, you know, one after the other, after the other. And, uh, Katie, uh, was, was the very last one. And I gave her a call and I said, Hey, I'm coming over. And she immediately was, you know, hysterically crying and come to find out that her housemates that she had been living with for the last month, they had all tested positive for COVID. And so she Mm -hmm. was initially thinking, you know, here it is the day before the race, I'm going to test positive for COVID. I'm not going to get to, you know, go to the start line. And so I go over to her house and I've never met her in person before because she lives in France. Mm-hmm. So I go over to her house. The first time I meet her in person, I'm giving her a, you know, a rapid test, like at arm's length, <laughs> you know, take, take this test. We'll figure out, we'll figure it out. And if you test negative, then we're going to figure everything out from there. So the short story is, is she tested negative for COVID. We moved her into our athlete house. We had a CTS athlete house and happened to have space there. We moved her in there, got all of her stuff squared away. She goes and she wins the race and she goes from, you know, 24 hours beforehand thinking that she has COVID, definitely has COVID <laughs> and is going to have to not even start the race to winning the race, right? That's a big peak and valley mm-hmm. right there. So you go from that peak to that, to or sorry, from that valley to that peak in that short amount of time. Uh, that, that was pretty special for her, but the whole thing was rounded out by, you know, me crewing Abby throughout her CCC and have an incredible performance and then crewing for Katie, who happened to have this very traumatic series of events and her winning the race in the fashion that she did. It was the kind of a comeback win where she fell behind in the middle of the race and things like that just made the whole thing, you know, very, very special. And then I went back out on course after she finished, I went back out on course and saw a few of my, you know, 35 to you know, 40 hour, uh, UTMB finishers. And I got to see everybody, you know, everybody at some point during the race and everybody was, was successful. So it was a cool, really cool experience all, all the way down the line. And then I drove directly to the Geneva airport. Yeah. Like it was, you know, 48 <laughs> hours and no, no, no sleep and, you know, going yep. on to the next. Yeah. I think we've all done that at some stage. Oh, yeah. Um, all right. And and those who follow your podcast or follow you on social media will be aware that you've been sort of off those the last little while, um, the last couple of months or so, and you've just re- recently returned home 
to the States, but obviously, as you said, you're on the road at the moment, but you've been working on a, a bit of a project. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what, what you've been doing the last little while? Yeah. So that was the next stage of that story is I drove straight to the Geneva airport and yeah. onto this other, like literally onto this other project within a day. Uh, so I have another athlete, uh, Mina Gully, and we should leave a link in the show notes to this because it is mm. a, it is a really cool project. She's running 200 marathons over the course of a year that all end um, at the UN conference in New York in March in 2023 to raise awareness about the various water crises that are going on around the world. And so she's literally running on every single continent except, except for Antarctica in you know some of the you know, most challenged areas in terms of what is going on uh, uh, with, with their water, whether it's drought or glaciers melting or the water is contaminated or they just don't have any, right? Mm. Um, all, all in an effort to raise awareness globally uh, around this singular uh, around this singular issue of, uh, of water. And so I was part of her uh, European support team, essentially. We spent a leg in Europe, kind of hopscotching around you know, everywhere really. Um, and, uh, so yeah, I did that for, uh, September and up for some of August, September, and basically all of October. And then I just returned back to the, back to the States for my quote unquote normal life. <laughs> yep. Fair enough. Um, and, and I guess thinking about that, I mean, I've supported a few athletes that have done kind of similar projects to that in the past, not out on the road with them, but more just from the nutrition side of things. But I guess when you're looking at that on the ground there with the athlete, where do you see, I guess, the biggest challenges happen? I mean, there's things around, obviously, you know, looking after your feet and blisters and that kind of thing. There's the nutrition piece, there's the sleep piece, there's the recovery piece. What, where do you see sort of the biggest challenges coming? It really depends on the athlete. And I know that's a total cop-out coaching excuse so i'm going to give you detail behind it like if one of my coaches like told me that like oh it depends on the athlete i would not let them get away with it so i'm not going to you know <laughs> i'm not going to get away with it either but everybody is going to default to whatever their weakest link is in an expedition of that length yeah. and so it could be something as simple as hey my pinky toe right something mm. totally benign it never pops up in training you don't really see it you know during the entire process or whatever it could be something just that simple it could also be nutrition just calorie availability and being able to get in you know the requisite number of calories because of whatever reason you don't have the access or the athlete's stomach can't tolerate it or whatever it could be heat Right. Just mitigating the heat mm. in really hot weather environments if the project happens to, you know, go over those things. Or as we learned, you know, with uh, Timothy Olson's fastest known time uh, on the Pacific Crest Trail, it can be different depending upon the stage of the project. Some of these things are so long in length that you end up having different limiting factors for different parts of the expedition. Mm. And the ability to plan and to forecast for that is that actually becomes quite consequential when you're helping when you're helping athletes try to navigate the whole thing and then even set it up from a support standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a that's a really good point. And um, you know, if anyone's sort of planning one of these things is sort of thinking about what are all those things that that could crop up as an issue and sort of having plans i guess in place for all of them but then realizing probably those plans will get thrown out the window at some stage as well yeah but to be honest with you like if you i've always thought if you do a really good job thinking about what those limiting factors are going to be and forecasting for them 
you shouldn't have you shouldn't have so many curveballs thrown your way. You're Ooh. always going you're always going to have those curveballs, the things that are unforeseen. But if you if you do a if you do your due diligence in advance of the event and really think about what's going to actually transpire, your job as a coach, and this is me coming at it from a pure coaching perspective, your job as a coach should be to forecast that as good as you can, as much as possible, so that you're coming up with the interventions in advance of the issue. And you're not waiting for the issue to actually transpire before you're throwing the intervention in there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's true of of any race, really. That could even be doing a marathon or your Ironman or something. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, let's get into uh, some more specifics on nutrition now. And as a coach, obviously, you get to think about this a lot and have a lot of conversations with athletes around nutrition. Um, But I guess to start off with, with your coaching hat on, do you tend to get involved in the nutrition side of things with athletes a lot, or do you have sort of a a team that works with the athletes and someone else is doing more of the nutrition planning? How does that kind of work with with your athletes? It's, it's both. I mean, we do a lot of the race day and the workout types of planning. Uh, but at the same time, I realize my own limitations, right? I mean, coaching inevitably is kind of a Jack and Jill of all trades and master of none type of profession. Mm. And the way that I've always explained it is, is we have to have like a 90% proficiency rating across all of these different uh, disciplines, whether it's psychology or planning or tactics or exercise physiology, you know, human relations, like you, you kind of name it. There's a whole broad array of, uh, of things that maybe 90% is actually is being too generous knowing Mm. people like yourself and the real domain experts that know those areas, um, those areas quite well. Um, but yeah, we do try, we do do our best to try to hone in athletes, uh, uh, nutrition plans, um, as, as good as we can, because the fact of the matter is it's a huge driver of performance. Mm. Um, you know, in fact, you could make the argument that it is the biggest driver of performance for, for, for many athletes, maybe not for everybody, but, but for many athletes and just like the whole sports science arena has changed, um, within ultra marathon, the nutrition piece has actually changed remarkably as well. And some of that is driven from, uh, just the products being more specific and more tailored towards a specific situation. We were just talking about how situationally, you can forecast things and now you have an array of products to cert- to suit certain situations to so even just the ingredients becoming more efficacious and, 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 and sometimes less efficacious, uh, it's, it's, it's certain products. So anyway, uh, it's, it has become a big and it all, and it will continue to be a big area of our, uh, of our coaching practice simply because it is a big driver. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And that was going to be my next question, actually, was I guess we talked a bit about how the approach to coaching and training has evolved over time in sort of the ultra distance side of things, and particularly trail and ultra running. How have you seen that play out on the nutrition side, uh, products aside? What are the kind of the trends or changes you've seen in terms of how the, the ultra runners are tackling nutrition? I mean, if you look at it over the course of at least my experience, which is going on 20 years now, specifically in ultra marathon, you can, you could really summarize it across two points is one, the athletes are using a greater proportion of engineered foods 
So the gels and the sports drinks and the chews and things like that, there's just a greater proportion of their entire caloric mix that they can take for longer periods of time. And the second thing is, is they're just taking in more carbohydrate. I mean, I would have never have thought 15 years ago that you would see, you know, hundred grams of carbs, 120 grams of carbs an hour for several hours, not just for two or three, for Ooh. several, for many hours across even a small handful of athletes. Um, one of our mutual colleagues, uh, Inigo San Milan, who I, I've had on my podcast as well, he, he actually tells this fantastic story that I actually, I actually remember, uh, quite, uh, quite vividly where when he first started doing that in the cycling world, telling athletes to go, you know, higher than this 60 to 90 gram range, which became relatively ubiquitous for, you know, a period of seven or eight years. When he started telling athletes to go above that, he kind of got laughed at. You know, and this was in the late 2000s, 2009, 2011, yep. 2012, things like that. I mean, he, he actually kind of like, I got laughed out of my meetings. He got laughed out of a lot of his meetings and come to come to turn 10 years after that, right. We're on 2022 now that we start to see more of more of that in, in practice, not only in the cycling realm and professional cycling and stage race cycling, but we're also starting to see it kind of come into trail and ultra running as well. So those two things, just the whole, the fact that we have this bigger array of engineered food that we can utilize across different situations. And then therefore athletes can use them for longer and longer events in a bigger proportion of their calories for longer events. And the fact that the, that carbohydrate utilization has, or carbohydrate use has just kind of gone up every, you know, every, every year is I think quite remarkable. Mm. And so the ability to use those kind of foods, you're thinking more around the gut tolerance side of things around the flavor, like they're not as sweet. So you can tolerate eating them over a longer period of time, a bit of both of those sort of things. Uh, or something yeah. Else? A little bit, a little bit of both. I mean, I, I do think that the, that the product development has made a material difference you know, we, we actually, CTS is a company, we help Power Bar formulate their initial endurance and recovery drink. And I remember going through that process and, uh, you know, we learned a lesson there that athletes couldn't tolerate that over about two or three hours simply because of the sweetness profile of it. And that was a, yep. a you know, 8% type of solution. And now you see three, four or 5% types of solutions that you can use in hot weather environments where they're consuming a lot. And then you also see the other end of the spectrum mm. where it's, you know, a 16 you know, percent carbohydrate types of solutions that are meant, meant for more colder, or if you need to get all of your calorie calories in from a liquid perspective, just from a situational perspective, right. Or just from yep. a situational point of view, like a mountain bike race, where you can't take your hands off the bars or something like that. Mm. So some of it absolutely has to do with the array of product designs. We're not just limited to gels and chocolate yeah. gels, right? <laughs> it used to be the chocolate and vanilla or the chocolate yeah. vanilla and there's always berry, right? Those yeah. are the three flavors that we had to choose from that long ago. But then I, I do also think that because of the awareness around carbohydrate use, athletes are, are, are kind of pushing the envelope more and more with them and just trying to see what those upper, upper tolerances are. And you see a lot of cases and in the ultra marathon world, I'll still kind of limit them to use cases versus what I would kind of blanketly recommend that mm. get up into this hundred to 120 grams of carbohydrates per, per hour recommendation. Yeah, yeah. And that was going to be my next question, actually. So if we think about UTMB this year, and certainly the observations that Steph and I had from afar here on social media was 
that trend for a lot of the top guys to be pushing that amount of carbs, which, as you said, um, has been happening in cycling for a little while now and has sort of yeah. seemed to cross over into, into the ultra space. Is that something that you felt was fairly new this year or do you think that's been going on for a little while now? I think it's been going on for a little while. The, 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 the problem, the, everybody has a little bit of a warped perspective on it because mm. what you see are just the people who have survived, right? Mm. You don't see a lot of the people who tried that and then they failed. I see those people right after yeah. the fact. They're like, hey, I tried, I tried, <laughs> tried this and tried to do, you know, a hundred grams an hour and I couldn't tolerate it. And I dropped out after a hundred K or whatever, kind of whatever yeah. it is. So we have to be careful when we see that because it's a little bit, what we see is a little bit self-selecting. You're mm. only seeing the people who have actually survived that. And that might not be a good representative sample to give blanket recommendations off of. Everybody wants to do what Killian did, right? Yeah. But Killian is Killian. Like you can't mm. create, you can't create, you know, uniform recommendations or across the board recommendations based off of what the absolute best person in the world over the course of the last over decade actually does because he's just so unique in every way. And although that's an example of one person, you can kind of fold that example down to a lot of the elite ultra runners where, yes, we should observe it and we should take note and we should study it, but we should still understand that they are individuals and everybody out there individuals and what is what we're even recommending for this population group, elite athlete population group, may or may not translate down the pack to your mm. 35 or 45 hour UTMB finisher. Totally, totally. And that's something that, you know, Steph's catch cry on this podcast is often exactly that is, you know, don't just copy what, what the top guys are doing because it may not be relevant to you, necessary or, or you know, tolerable from a gut point of view as well. The yeah, relevance so. point is always what gets me going. I'm like, yeah, but you're, you're, you, you're not expending 120 grams of carbohydrate right. an hour. Like you might, so you don't need to replace all of that. Like exactly. with all due, with all due respect, you're not that good. And a yep. lot of people just, they just don't understand that, you know, that very simple, you know, we're talking about energy balance here, right? That very simple, that very simple, simple type of type of energy expenditure equation. So like I said, I've always looked at that and gone, okay, that's neat. What can I take from this? Is it applicable to the next athlete? Okay, move on. And I, I do think if I can get up on a soapbox a little bit, there, there are a lot of popular like articles and podcasts and content that is produced that revolve around this is what the, this elite athlete did. Mm. And far too often that content fails to contextualize, not necessarily the translation, usually that's just totally forgotten about, but fails to contextualize the fact that they are an elite athlete and they need this because of whatever it is, their energy expenditure or how much you know, sodium they need to take in or how much fluid they're actually expending because their body, they can maintain such a high body temperature for longer periods of time. Like those types of things tend to get lost in the lay literature and in the popular literature when regular people are just reading about it. And I think we always need to take a chance to, 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 to just reinforce that notion that that's what an elite athlete is doing. You might not need to, and probably don't need to be modeling your behaviors around that in your strategies around that same thing yeah totally and we were doing a workshop last week actually for sports dietitians and talking about endurance sports and we made that exact point that you know you can have two guys 
uh, riding up a hill together, for example, same watts per kilo if they're the same body weight. So they're expending the same amount of energy, but one is barely blowing out a candle and the other is right on his limit <laughs> because one's elite and yeah. one's recreational. Yeah. Yeah. So it's yeah. the same absolute intensity but different relative yeah. intensity. But then mm-hmm. when you look at the the science side of things, generally we do everything in, in relative intensity. So you have two people working at yeah. 70% of their VO2 max, but one's pushing, you know, 300 watts and the other one's pushing 150 watts and so the energy expenditure in absolute terms just exactly what you're saying here is completely different between those two athletes even though they're working at the same percentage of their max whether it's vo2 max max heart rate lactate threshold whatever it is yep yep contextualizing these broad recommendations for an individual, I really think is, I think that's one of the key skills for any practitioner like you and myself, whether a coach or a sports scientist Ooh. or a nutritionist or whatever to actually have, because it, it's, it, it can vary so dramatically depending upon any number of factors. And you can't just use the cop out. It's all individual, right? Yeah, it yeah. is, but let's make it individual and give people specific and individualized recommendations based off of what we know is going to work. Yep, yep. And I guess the other thing around that, looking at those guys who are pushing those higher sort of carbohydrate intakes at the elite end, again, you know, on social media, you can get a kind of a, a biased selection of that, you know, have someone filming a bunch of guys that were doing that, yeah, but then yeah. they're not filming the guys who weren't doing that. And I guess from your experience seeing those guys, I'm guessing not all of them are pushing those high carbohydrate intakes even though they're at that elite level? Yeah, not all of them. I mean, there still is a range, right? But as you scale higher and higher into the, you know, into the pack, so to speak, typically that carbohydrate usage as a percentage of the whole is going to scale up as well. And it's just a byproduct of, A, the duration of the event is is shorter for them, right? Killian's UTMB is going to be way faster than my or your UTMB, right? But in addition to that, which compounds the difference, they're able to maintain a higher intensity, even if they were just running a 20-hour event. Right. Let's just say we've got Killian and the hundredth place UTMB finisher running for 20 hours. Killian's probably going to be able to maintain a higher fraction of his VO2 max for that 20 hour effort as compared to the normal person. So then when you combine both of those, it's almost like it's not even the same event. And that's what I kind of keep coming back to on the individualization of things. You have to understand how, how truly different from any number of aspects, one race that it's the same distance for can be for different people, depending upon where they're, they're finishing, not only in terms of intensity, which we were just talking about, but even just look at the mode, right? How much hiking versus how much running they're doing. That's Ooh. even going to vary quite differently from the beginning to the middle to the end of the pack. So you've got all these different factors that makes the translation of what we see on social media or whatever, very, very, very hard for anybody who is not that individual that we're, you know, that we're looking at. Yep. Yep. Okay. Well, let's talk about another social media phenomenon, another individual, but this time we're going to look at the lower end of the, the carbohydrate spectrum. Now you mentioned before that you coached Timothy Olson, And if we cast our mind back probably about a decade to probably one of the the races that he's most well known for was when he won the Western States 100 in 2012 and, and broke the course record at that time. It's, it's since been broken again. Uh, and he won it the following year as well. But I guess a lot of um, attention, particularly on social media, was made at that time around his diet. And 
he was sort of put up, I think, a little bit, well, certainly from my observations, almost as like the poster boy for the low-carb movement, which was sort of at its peak at that time um, around you know, athletic performance and saying that Tim was eating this his low-carb, high-fat, and see, he's broken the Western States record, so it must be the best way to go. And, uh, you know, and you had people that, you know, sports doctors and very prominent sports scientists promoting this kind of message and I think you know Tim and probably Chris Froome was the other one that got put up you know he put on <laughs> Instagram you know his breakfast one morning when he was doing an easy recovery ride of you know bacon and eggs and all of a sudden he's eating keto and he won the Tour de France on a keto diet and all this kind of stuff um, and I, I remember you know Tim was invited onto low carb podcasts and all this kind of stuff but as his coach what did you make of all of this at the time and I can see you shaking your head but um, well, it must have been an interesting experience well, so let me let me put some context on this. So I didn't start working with Tim until after he had okay. won those Western states. Yep. So he and I started working. The, Tim's career arc, just to put it in perspective for the listeners who may or not may or may not be familiar with, he won Western states twice during one of those record during one of those runs. He set a course record, and then he went into a valley of his career of infinite depths. He couldn't even finish a run. Right. Mm. So v- very classic. You know, if there if there is anything such thing as overtraining or over fatigue syndrome, he had he had it all. Every mm-hmm. however you want to define it, whatever you know parameters you want to put around it, he had every single you know marker and indice of that. And that's when I actually started coaching him. Was that that mm-hmm. was that that very very lowest of lows? So I I'm not going to profess to know his exact diet. Um, around those two Western States uh, runs, but I actually do know it more presently after, after helping him kind of pull out of that low. What I will, what I will say about this, and it's interesting that you brought up the Chris Froome example, is that the way that, that Tim's diet was portrayed mirrored exactly what we saw from the low carb community in Chris Froome. Mm. You see one sliver of one example where they eat anything remotely low carb or keto. And that's the sole aspect that everybody latches onto in that community. And there's a little bit of passion in my voice because I get sick and tired of that crap Mm. because it's not representative of what a lot of these athletes are actually doing. And Chris was a great example of that is where he had to like go back and say, no, 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 no. I ate this once. Like this is one yep. day. I believe in low carb days and high carb days. And yep. here's what I had the very next day, right? He posted that right afterwards. Here's mm. what I had the very next day. But the low carb and the keto community don't recognize that, right? They latch mm. on to that very one example when the athlete in this case is actually publicly refuting all of the reporting that was done around him, mm. a, a mirror image of that, not a mirror image, a, a somewhat parallel image of that happened with Tim where, yeah, he eats at the time was eating a, you know, I would call it more paleo than it would, than it was low carb mm. where, yeah, he was eating a lot of animal meat and something like that. It certainly would not fall into the low carb or keto standards of the way that the research defines it right now. It certainly would not, uh, fall into that. But because there was this one little sliver of truth, that whole community kind of latched on, kind of, kind of latched onto it. So, I mean, suffice, suffice it to say, Tim can always talk about his own diet during that time. But it, it, since I have been coaching him and since I brought him out of that hole, it has not represented that to any stretch of the imagination. And I know that very viscerally having fed him, I don't know how many Snickers bars and, 
you know, probar bolts and other, you know, sources of, you know, highly refined sugar and carbohydrate products yeah. while he was out on the PCT, which is a 2,600 mile, you know, event, which would be tailor-made, right, for... Mm you know, a low carb or a keto effort, he was, he was consuming a lot of carbohydrates on, on, yeah. on that trip. So anyway, it's, I, I think a lot of these things become distorted yep. for one reason or another, because that community has just become so, they've just become so vociferous about their particular angle on sports science. And they, they, they get their horse blinders put on to a certain degree whenever there's even, whenever there's actual information that comes out, even just a day later, that tends to con- that tends to contradict whatever they were purporting the day before. So it's mm. it's I don't know. It's been just really interesting and frustrating to me all at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I know exactly what you mean. And yeah, it was interesting. Like I remember he he was invited on this low carb podcast, and they're asking him about it, and he's like, "Well, hang on. I know I can't do these big training sessions without any carbs. So I go out and eat like a whole bunch of sweet potato and have like." bananas and stuff you know the day before these big train and that was even back then and yeah. and yeah he had his blog and he talked about what he ate during that western states when he did break the record i'm looking at going that's like 40 50 grams an hour of carbs yeah. minimum yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. interesting yeah. <laughs> um let's move on from carbohydrate now to the the fluid side of things and another area that's been probably pretty controversial over the years um and similar to the low carb community people uh, kind of trying to almost create this, you know, you're either pro fluid or you're pro drinking to thirst kind of thing and, and trying to set up almost this dichotomy to have to set up an argument. Um, how have you seen that play out in the, the ultra side of things in terms of like, what are people doing now? Are they sort of planning a specific amount of fluid? Are they kind of letting thirst guide them? Are they doing sort of a, a, a bit of a hybrid of both? How do you see the elite guys sort of tackling the hydration side of things these days? Well, I mean, going back to my original example, um, where people would get their information off of, you know, this ultra listserv, which was this, you know, kind of email chain between everybody at the time, it has gone from consume as much fluids as possible to now it's a much more reasonable approach where the, the kind of the gold standard now is, is you should know how much fluid you need to replace based on the conditions that you are training in hmm. and you should, and you should try to shoot for that. If you don't know whether or not to do that, you need to formulate a reasonable, a reasonable plan in advance. And I'll give, I'll give kind of two, you know, kind of two examples of that for a long time, the premier hundred mile race in the U S the Western States 100 would use body weight, um, at certain checkpoints. And if you were below 8% body weight as compared to your weigh-in, they would hold you at that aid station or automatically disqualify you. Mm. And what ended up happening is, is so many people were over drinking that there was this rash of hyponatremia that was going on, going on at the finish line. And so, and so the, 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 the athletes have like, since, you know, like corrected that mistake over, over years and years and years, but you combine with that, this, this, um, uh, this phenomenon that, uh, that, that all, that a lot of the, uh, like supplemental sodium or the sodium supplementation was kind of originated in trail and ultra running be kind of not because of this, but in part, because of this. And it's always been this thing that athletes just have had a hard time figuring out, like even, like even to this day in terms of 
how like how much they actually need to drink when the simple fact of a scale which has been used for forever by physicians when you can't even use that reliably out on a race course it's actually been quite phenomenal you know the 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 best that we can and we still don't know the answer to this i'm kind of rambling mm-hmm. around because i wanted to get to this part this this part of the discussion we still don't really know the the issue to this because we don't know how much of your body weight loss you should actually replace from fluids. We know it's not a hundred percent because then you're going to end up hyponatremic because some of the water is released in a non-functional way. We know it's not a hundred percent. We know it's probably not 99% and we know it's not 75%, but that's a pretty big range, right? We can guess maybe it's like 90 to 95% or something like that, depending upon like the duration, like the actual duration of the race and Mm -hmm. when that duration, it becomes deleterious at, you know, whatever percentage body, body weight loss. But we really, we really don't know that we really don't know the answer to that quite, quite yet. So, so once again, it becomes very tricky. Very fortunately, we have good medical interventions now. Right. I mean, the standard, you know, 3% uh, uh, sodium uh, bolus that they use in hyponatremia uh, patients now was largely developed at the Western States 100 as a, as a byproduct of their uh, medical director, Marty Hoffman, or their former yeah. medical director, Marty Hoffman. So, so fortunately, although we don't have very good guidelines, we have good after the fact interventions, but we're, we're, I think we're getting closer there. Once again, we know we're not supposed to replace 100%. We know we're probably supposed to replace somewhere north of, I'm going to narrow it down a little bit more, 85%. In between there, it's just kind of like a, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's duration dependent, maybe not. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a tricky aim to, to, to try to, to try to find. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's something I actually did did some modeling on just recently on the, both the fluid and the sodium side of things. Um, And yeah, part of it is also about, you know, what do you consider is the, I guess the extent of fluid deficit that right. is optimal um, in terms of, yeah. you know, beyond what point it is, does performance start to decline? And, you know, we have some idea of that in shorter, higher intensity type events. We've got virtually no idea in sort of ultra distance stuff. Uh, and I suspect given right. that the intensity is different, that it, the, the number is probably different as well. Well, and that speaking of the things that you can't translate, right? There's that old story from one of Haile Gabriel Selassie's marathons where he came to the finish line, like it was eight percent. You know, mm. he lost eight percent of his uh, body weight, and uh, everybody held that up for a period of time, saying, "See, you can mm. get this. You you can't have this amount of dehydration and still perform to whatever level he was performing at." And the ultramarathon world started extrapolating that. And I'm like, wait, 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 hold on. First off, you're talking about, that might be true, but you're getting lucky if that is true. Mm. Because we're talking about a different sport. You're talking about elite athlete. And you're talking about somebody who has to maintain that level of dehydration for, a, for in comparison to an ultramarathon, a very, a very short amount of time mm. in a temperate, in a, in a, in an environment that is not nearly as warm as some of the environments that we see in ultra. So anyway, it kind of just goes back to the, to, you know, circle back on one of our earlier points where you can't always extrapolate these things out of elite athletes or the other sports mm. to drive what we're actually doing in ultra. You have to think about it in a completely different context. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. And so for the athletes that you work with now, how do you kind of approach this? Because obviously, and this is something we talked about with Lewis James back on episode 3A of the podcast about, you know, do you plan a specific amount? Do you drink to thirst? Do you do some kind of mix of that? Uh, Certainly, I guess where I've probably settled with most of the athletes that I work with is, as you said before, trying to get a sense of like, what is the expected I guess, sweat loss in different conditions. And obviously with ultra running, that's going to vary across the day. And if you're running overnight and that kind of thing, and then obviously have enough fluid available to cover that range and that need. But then at some stage, you know, even if you're out by 10% or 15%, which is very easy to do because the weather is different to what you expected on the day. If you just stick to a rigid plan and go 10 or 15% over or under over 10, 15, 20 hours, all of a sudden you're going to be, you know, way out by the end. And so, you know, really thirst is the only mechanism we've got to adjust that in real time at this stage. I know there's some, some wearables kind of in the pipeline that might change that in the future, but they're not really at that point yet. Is that pretty much how you approach it with the athletes that you work with is kind of have a bit of a plan of what, we expect is going to be the need, but then, you know, use how you're feeling to adjust it on the day. Well, I try to get as much of it going back to my earlier point with you're trying to get everything out of the way as early as possible. I try to do that to whatever I extent I can in training and the Ooh. gradient that I use, and this, this is just me, right? I, I realize that there are other solutions out there, but I use 10 degree Fahrenheit increments and Ooh. I just do standard you know, before, after way, we figure out your sweat, what your sweat rate is in those conditions and then extrapolate that to what it means on race day. Because yep. in race day, especially in the longer ultras, you have to realize that you're planning for kind of like each four hour segment almost. Yep. So in a race like Western States, you're going to have a completely different fluid plan at the beginning of the race when it's cold as compared to the middle race when it's super hot. And sometimes it's like mm. 2.5 X, right? As you know, yep. like it, yep. cha- it changes quite drastically. So not only are you changing the absolute fluid intake in most cases, especially with the athletes that I work with, we're actually changing what they are drinking, right? Mm. Because you want to drink with less calories. So they're not overthrowing their calorie balance and all, and kind of all those other things. So that's my first step is to try to get some sort of graded sweat test across reasonable conditions that most athletes can get. And if they're elite athlete, then there's kind of like no excuse. And we have the the full range. Mm. The second thing is, is I tell you what, it's really poignant that we're recording this just several days before the running event in Austin, because I'm going to see this when I'm there. Once the wearables come out, game changer. And I I think that out of all of the stupid and useful things that we have in the wearable space, or rings and whoop straps and, you know, total nighttime heart rate variability and all this other stuff. If we can get wearables that will tell you how much you're sweating and what the electrolyte composition is across that game changer in terms of managing real time performance, because we can get a decent gauge of it in like, I would say decent, not great, a decent gauge of it in training. But if you can automate that from a, during a, in a racing type of situation and the athlete doesn't have to think, I, I think that that is the best use case for any wearable. If you were to have, if you were to lay out all the wearables for me and tell me to pick one for a race situation that an athlete has to have, I'd pick that. I'd pick that over time and distance. Mm. Like I just say this, you figure out where the aid stations are. I want to know your hydration status. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I, I, I do think that, that, that's a piece of technology that helps solve for this race day problem of 
we can only plan for so much and drink to thirst starts to fail because of the environment and the duration of the race and everything that kind of confounds it in these ultra marathon types of situations the wearable very conveniently solves that problem of those two failure points so i'm i'm really hopeful for that because i think the technology is there it's not that complicated and it'll it'll be reasonable once it starts to come out and kind of proliferate throughout the throughout the ecosystem yeah yeah so it sounds like at the moment though with the lack of that technology it's really trying to understand the sweat rate of your athletes as best as you possibly can and collect as much data in training as you possibly can i i try to do that and then you have to realize that's where the limitations are and then you just ha- i try to preach to my athletes to be as self-aware as possible that if they need to titrate one way or the other, more fluid, more sodium, just based on how they're feeling, hey, you come into an aid station and all the salty stuff looks good, let's go there. Let's mm. get more sodium into your whole mix of things, you know, as you kind of go go down the road. You're peeing a lot, right? And it's super clear and you're kind of bloated, let's back off of the hydration. Mm. Like there you're yeah. gonna you're gonna have to have a, a mix of both, but I I I, I really, especially in the races with big temperature swings, you can't emphasize this enough that you're going to have to have a reasonable plan formulated around all of these different temperature gradients because it's, I mean, you, I don't need to tell you, man, mm. it's just so wildly different and we get caught We're creatures of habit, right? I'm going to do a bottle an hour for the next six hours. Well, you might've needed to do that for the first two hours, but the last four hours, you might've needed to double that. And then you've, uh, then all of a sudden you've dug yourself a hole. So making sure that you've got all that research kind of planned out in advance, I think is super, super important to, in, in this particular sport. Yeah. Cool. All right. Let's, let's talk about some other aspects of nutrition you've had over uh, I think it's about 130 episodes on your podcast now. And, and several of those have been around different, aspects of nutrition between those and, and sort of other conversations and research you've done for your book what are the sort of the key things that you've picked up about nutrition along the way besides maybe that the carbs and then the fluid side of it um just honestly like the array of solutions that people have mm-hmm. um you know i maybe maybe i'm lucky you know personally i use the same products for like the last 10 years and they work. I use them in roughly the same proportion. You know, maybe I change, maybe I get crazy and I change the flavor or I use the (laughs) caffeinated version instead of the non-caffeinated version or whatever, you know, but I, I, when one of the, one of the blessings of coaching a wide variety of athletes from elites to the middle, kind of to the back of the pack, lots of experience to very little experience, is you get to see the different array of solutions that they have kind of come to. And some of the elites have had total shit solutions. And you just look at this and you go, like, how, how did you get even close to where you're at? And some of the athletes that are completely underperforming have perfect solutions or what you would think are perfect solutions on paper, yet they're nauseous. They keep having, you know, whatever other kind of nutritional issues that can get kind of manifested down on the race course. And you have no idea why. Mm. So seeing the two ends of that, that, that spectrum across the wide variety of athletes has just given me a, a, an appreciation 
not to simply dismiss it as to, oh, everybody's an individual, find out what works for you. That's a small part of it, but you still got to ground that in some sort of sign with some sort of scientific reasoning and also some sort of logic that's tailored to uh, that's tailored to the individual. That that's really what I've taken from my pra- my practice is that these endpoints are all you know kind of wide out there, but we can start to bring them together in some sort of logical fashion. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense. And so, I guess pulling all of that together, is there one particular thing about nutrition that you think ultra runners do really well? As a generalization. They eat. <laughs> I mean, no, they're they're good at it. You know, yeah. I mean, one of the blessings is is especially for like the mid packers, the intensity is just so low. You can kind of mm. get away. You can get away with you know eating quesadillas and cheeseburgers and donuts mm. and you know things like that at aid stations. And whenever I go out there, and you know, especially bef- before maybe a lot of the duration is set in, kind of early on in the race, just seeing like people just sit down and you know, mow down a gigantic burrito in the middle of a race and then just start yep. plowing down the trail. So I, I think, I think that they, I think that they do that very well, but I also think because the sport is so extreme and one of the things I appreciate about all of people's different philosophies is people are willing to try kind of very particular, peculiar, I'm not going to say, you know, bizarre, but very peculiar things. I mean, you don't see a lot of the extreme low carb or no carbohydrate or no calorie things in other types of sporting uh, activities yet you see it in, in in ultra marathon and while i might not agree with all of those and i vehemently disagree from a from a practitioner standpoint with some of those things i still appreciate the effort of just saying listen we're in this weird thing let me just see if this thing can actually work so I, like i said I've, I've always i've always appreciated that about the communities they're always willing to try to try something, even though it yeah. might be completely, you know, asinine to our, you know, scientific minds or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, and is there one particular aspect of nutrition that you think as a generalization, most ultra runners don't do well or could improve on? Um, I, I think it's starting with the premise that particularly in a long event, you need to look for foods with different flavor profiles and incorporate them into your plan. Most athletes are just going to be sweet. I have a sweet drink. I have a sweet type of calorie source and I've got a sweet backup to that calorie source, right? So it's sweet, sweet, sweet. And maybe, you know, to to poke fun of me earlier, I change from lemon lime to orange, right? It's still a still sweet type of flavor. I, I do think that that most of the time when I'm looking at people's nutrition plans and they're coming in, they're like, ah, well, I I can't stand you know, gels after, you know, 10 hours or whatever it is. I'm like, well, that's because all you had were gels. Yeah. Like, of course, if all you had were gels, you're going to get sick of gels. Let's try doing something with a different flavor profile a little bit earlier so that instead of 10 hours, maybe we push that out to 12 or 14 hours. And that becomes, that actually becomes material. And it still just baffles me that people will still, that, Gels at the aid station, you know, gels here, gels there, chomps there, and I get sick of them after a certain amount of time. Well, let's just change the flavor profile of them or something a little bit mm. earlier in order to improve upon that. Yeah, yeah, cool. And then one message about nutrition you wish you could get across to as many athletes as possible. 
Oh man. I think that's just a different version of this, of the same yeah. question. Um, no, I, I, so in an ultra marathon context, I, I really do think that hydration needs to lead calories. You have to figure out your hydration plan first because a certain amount of your caloric budget is going to be taken up with, uh, uh, with whatever hydration source that you're using. If you're using anything, but plain water and, you know, supplemental sodium, which most people are going to have some sort of drink in there, but starting with that, because it is so much more dynamic than the calorie side of things, calorie side of things, steady state, maybe a little bit of deviation. If it gets hot, you're going to take in a little bit less when it gets cold. Maybe you can take in a little bit more when the intensity goes down. Maybe you can tolerate a little bit more, but those are subtle shifts. Hydration on the other side has, you know, can, can fold over two or maybe even three times from one extreme to the other, which you can experience during an event. So I think when athletes start, I, I wish a lot of them would flip the prioritization of how they solve the problem around. Because most people, and you probably, you, you and your colleagues probably experience this a lot as well. The first question they ask is, how many calories do I need? Mm. Right. And so they're yep. thinking about it from how much carbohydrate or how many calories do I need? And yeah, that's important. Don't, don't get me wrong. But I think the first question that people need to ask is how much fluid do I require at whatever temperature? And then you can layer on the calories that you're taking on in addition to that on top of that. But because the first component is so dynamic, I think it's more important to tackle first. Mm -hmm. Yeah, makes sense. All right, so we're just going to finish up with a couple of quick bonus round questions. Our first one is, is there a sport that you'd love to try, but you've never had the chance to do it? Oh, jiu-jitsu. Yeah? Yeah, my, my wife's in the corner. Of the, I don't know. I'm just a big MMA fan. My wife's in the corner. She's probably scoffing at me right now. <laughs> um, I think it's something that I, I think is a combat sport where I won't actually get hurt. I'm yep. afraid to do boxing or taekwondo yep. or anything like that. But yeah, yep. jiu-jitsu. Plus, yep. plus, I just think it's a really artful like combat sport. Yeah. Cool. Uh, favorite post run food or drink? Uh, definitely pizza. Yep. And, yep. uh, sparkling water. Yep. Fair enough. Uh, favorite sporting moment in 2022 so far? Um, well, I mean, we talked about UTMB. I mean, I, I'm not gonna lie. That was a career highlight. The 24 hours or however long it was 38 hours something like that long time yeah. of uh, supporting athletes out there and then having a winner and a lot of great performances across the board is definitely a sporting highlight for me for me yeah. personally yeah awesome and finally favorite piece of advice or motto do the work you know, Thanks. I mean, ultra marathon in this day and age, not to sound like too much of a curmudgeon, this day and age, we tend to like, we tend to put, we put a lot of necessary emphasis around the process and around different components of making sure that things are structured correctly and stuff like that. But endurance sports at the end of the day is going to honor work. You've got to get out there and put one foot in front of the other and get it done Whatever your readiness score tells you that morning or whatever it is, you can always find a thousand excuses to kind of like not do the work. You've got to actually go and, 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 and do the work in order to, 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 to be successful in this thing. There's just no way around it. Yeah, totally. And, and I've seen so many 
athletes who have, I think, in some ways wanted their nutrition to try and shortcut things as well. The yeah, thought no, of, oh, no. You can just tweak no. something in their nutrition and I'm like, mate, I think your nutrition's not the issue. It's your training plan, you know. You know? This is, I tell people this all the time. Like, you get fit and it makes everything better. Your nutrition plan doesn't have to be as, you should still make it precise, but you got more room to make errors when you're super mm. fit. Cause yep. at the end of the day, you've only got so much resource to go around. So let's get fit. You can work on things in tandem. You can work on your nutrition in tandem, but if you get 10% more fit, that makes your nutrition plan that much more effective, whatever you're doing. Mm. And then we can improve upon that. Yeah. So I, I'm completely on the same the same page with you. This is normally nutrition failures or failures of uh, either pacing or lack of fitness. Mm. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much, Jason, for your time. Uh, I know it's been a long one, but I think it's been a, a really fascinating discussion and, and getting your thoughts uh, in terms of boots on the ground with a lot of these events and a lot of these athletes and how this nutrition sort of plays out for them. So thanks so much for your time and um, yeah, good luck with the with the trip. Thanks, Alan. Appreciate it. That was great. Thank you very much, Jason, for your expertise. Next episode, Al. Yeah, so our next episode, episode 50B, another special episode. It is, as I said at the start of the podcast, our second birthday special. So Jason just celebrated the third birthday of his podcast, but it's the second birthday of this one. So as I mentioned, we are going to look back at the year that has been in the podcast and summarize every question that we have answered in the past year in one single episode. So it'll be short and sharp, but you'll get the quick uh, and, and to the point answers to each of those questions. So as I said, if you don't want to go back and listen to all those previous episodes to find a simple answer to a question, then this will be the episode for you because we're going to cover them all off in one go. And we are also going to make some announcements about the future of the Long Munch. So we had a couple of meetings about that over the last few weeks, Steph, and we are going to make a few changes. So we're going to let you know what they are next week and uh, you'll start to see and, and hear about those. Mm. Yep. Um, so you, you're pretty much telling our listeners now that they only really have to listen to us once a year. Well, if, if they want to get to the point, then yeah. <laughs> but... If you really want to dive into things in detail, <laughs> yeah. then you go back and listen to the specific episode. <laughs> good selling, good selling. So just a, a reminder that if you do have questions that you would like answered on the podcast, you can contact us at The Long Munch on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. And also just to remember there's now... 50 previous questions that we've already actually answered so if you're new to the podcast then welcome you may like to check out the back catalogue to see if there's something there that will be helpful to you most podcast apps only show you the last few episodes but if you click back you'll find the rest of them there going back to november 2020 so if you do want to be notified every time a new episode is available you can hit subscribe on the podcast app that you're listening to this on. And if your friends are asking about a particular nutrition issue for their training or racing and they're bugging the hell out of you and you've actually already heard it on the podcast, then just let them know. But otherwise, we will love and leave you and we will see you next week. Will do. See you then, everyone.